As we open God's word, let's ask him to enlighten it for us. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at that this evening along with Heidelberg Catechism question uh, or Lord's Day 33. Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 6. So Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, we're once again in the, in the section of the catechism and talking about the wonderful process of renewal that our God does in all of those that he redeems. As we started the gratitude section of the catechism, we were reminded that those who Christ redeems, he also renews. Uh, that it's not just a matter of he redeems us from our guilt and then leaves us to fix ourselves, uh, but God does a complete renovation in the life of his people. He not only redeems them from their guilt, but cleanses them of their pollution. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is something that we all believe in and cling to and rejoice in, that God does not leave us as he finds us, but conforms us to the image of his Son by the power of his spirit. And we want to talk about that process of renewal. Sometimes we call that process sanctification, uh, to be made holy. Um, whenever we think about that process, we could say that there are three parts to that. Um, there are three particular things that the Holy Spirit does. These are not my three points. 
Um, so don't write them down as my three points, boys and girls, if you're taking notes. We're not there yet. Um, but there are three things um, that, we are, that are involved in the sanctification of the sinner. Um, we can define it this way, as one Reformed theologian did. The sanctification is the gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he purifies the sinner from the pollution of sin. So that's number one, that he purifies from the pollution of sin, that he renews our whole nature in the image of God. And finally, that he enables us to perform good works. That's a wonderful summary of what God does in sanctifying his people. He purges the pollution, he renews us and makes us whole in the image of God, and he enables us to perform good works. Um, that's the, the process we're talking about um, in this particular section of the catechism. And we are prepared for that already in question one, that part of the comfort that we, that we draw from the Lord is not just that we belong to Christ and are therefore set free from the tyranny of the devil, we're not just redeemed, uh, but that question beautifully ends by recognizing that part of our comfort is that belonging to Christ, he also assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for God. Um, you, you hear that hope of renewal there, that the Holy Spirit, because I belong to Jesus, now the Holy Spirit goes to work in me and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Uh, that's the hope of what God does to us in his sanctifying work, um, that he enables us to do good works. And so we talked about good works and why we did them last time. Um, and so we've come, of course, what the catechism often does is having said, good works are important, good works are essential. There's no such thing as a dead faith. As James said, faith always bears fruit. And part of that fruit is the good work that God has commanded us to do, the catechism asks an important question. What are good works? Um, how do I know that the work I'm doing is the kind of work God wants me to do? Um, how do we understand those things? And so that's part of what we're going to do in, in beginning this discussion of sanctification, to think about two things. Now, here are my two points. I only have two, but you're just going to have to deal with it. Two points Two definitions, really, that were given in this Lord's Day. First is, what is sanctification? How do we understand that converting work that the Spirit is doing in us? So we want to have our definition of sanctification that we understand. So we're going to first say sanctification defined. What is that process that God is doing in us? And the second thing we need to define is good works. Uh, what, what is good works? What are good works? How do we define them? Um, and so we're going to do good works defined. So that's our two points uh, for this evening. Sanctification defined and good works defined. Um, we, we call the process of sanctification here um, the process of true repentance or conversion. Uh, that's how it's spoken of here, that process of renewal in question 88. Um, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion. And we're told two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. <clears throat> now what Romans 6 reminds us of is in the background of all of this, what God has already done for his people. Um, that there, there's a sense in which what God has done for us in Christ is to be thought of as a finished work. Uh, you notice that's how Paul talks about 
our lives in Christ in Romans 6. That our old self was crucified with Christ. It's already been put to death with him. That our old self died with him. It was crucified there, killed at the root, we might say, uh, by Christ's work on the cross. And the new self was raised with him. Right, Paul Paul makes a very helpful argument by saying, if we died with him, and he died, and then he rose from the dead, what does that mean for us? We rose with him. And if he lives now, what does that mean? We live with him. Um, And so there's a sense in which we have to think of these things as already being done. Um, That we can say in a full sense, we died with Christ, our old selves were crucified and buried, never to rise again. And what came forth from the grave with Christ was a new kind of life. Um, So new that the New Testament says, we're new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's how radical the change is that God has done for his people. There's a sense in which that's already finished. And so we have to begin by reminding ourselves that just as God does the redeeming, so God does the renewing. Um, And if you don't already know, that's good news. Um, Because if God did the redeeming and we did the renewing, uh, we'd be in trouble. And the first thing we have to recognize is that God does both the redeeming and the renewing. Christ did that in his death. He continues to do that by his spirit. Um, But one of the ways in which God works is by converting his people. Um, it's involved in that saving work of God where he changes our minds. Uh, the word that's often used by, by Paul in uh, the New Testament for, for repentance, he doesn't use it too many times, but when he uses it, it's a Greek word that literally means to change your mind. Um, and, and what the Bible teaches us in a beautiful way is what God does by the work of his spirit is to change our minds to turn us away from one thing and to turn us toward another. To turn us away from what we used to be and to turn us towards Christ. Um, That God does the turning. God does the changing. In that sense, God does the converting. Um, That's what we mean by conversion there. We're being converted from what we were to what we are now in Christ. Um, and God is the one who does the converting. God is the one who both crucified us with Christ and brings us to life in him. Um, Ursinus, who was one of the main authors of the catechism, put it this way. Man's conversion to God consists in a change of the corrupt mind and will into that which is good. Produced by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the law and the gospel, which is followed by a sincere desire to produce the fruits of repentance and the conformity of the life to all the commands of God. You hear that converting, changing the mind from what was evil to what is good. Um, And that's how God's people are to live in that reality that we've been changed, that we're not what we were. Um, we said last time in, in our discussion of good works, we said, of course, God redeems and renews. He doesn't leave the redeemed unrenewed because those kinds of people, if they were unrenewed, could not enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Un- unrenewed people cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And, and there was a quote, there's a quote in the last Lord's Day from 1 Corinthians 6, talking about um, that, do not be deceived, Paul says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, now that's, that's the, the frank news that the law preaches to all of us, but then he comes, of course, with the gospel. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's good news. Um, Good news because all of those things are past tense truths, current realities. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You can consider those things done. Right? It's not something that needs yet to be done to you. It's something that's been done by Christ through His Spirit. Um, that's good news for us. We're talking about a true conversion worked by God, turning us from evil people into holy people. Um, so the first part of that good news is God does the sanctifying. God does the working. It's the work of God. Uh, Work of God done by the Spirit of God. Working in us and indwelling us. Supernaturally changing us. Right, Doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. Bringing us from death to life. That's how radical this conversion is. Uh, Turning on people who were dead. Um, And that's of course something that only God can do. Um, And so he works directly, supernaturally in those things. And then he also enables us to work. That's part of what the sanctifying work does. It, it doesn't just turn on our minds and our minds and our wills, but it also turns on our abilities to work. So we are enabled to do good works. We are enabled to do the things that are pleasing to God. Um, that that converting work is active in us, in the dying away of the old self and in the coming to life of the new self. And so that's what's defined briefly in questions 89 and 90. What is the dying away of the old self? What is the Spirit enabling us to do by His grace and powerful work? He's enabling us to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. To be genuinely sorry for sin and to hate it more and more and run away from it. Um, this is the great gospel promise that, that God made even in the garden. When we had tried to make friends with the devil, right? On the list of all time stupid things the human race has done, that ranks right up there. Let's be friends with the devil. Um, and one of the, the glories of what God did is he came and he said, I will put enmity between you and the devil. I will put enmity between her offspring and your offspring. Right? I'm, you tried to be friends. I'm going to make you enemies. I'm going to drive a wedge between this friendship you've tried to make because that friendship will only end up with you enslaved and dead. Um, and so one of the great gifts that God gives us is to come and to say, you've tried to make friends with the devil. I'm going to make you his enemy. I'm going to drive a wedge between that friendship you've tried to forge. And where you've cast yourself into sin, what I'm going to do is turn you back away from it. 
so that you'll see it and be genuinely sorry for it. And you will hate it and more and more run away from it. Um, That's what the dying away of the old self is. To more and more see those things in our lives. And then not just that, but also the coming to life of the new. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Um, Genuine sorrow is always involved in repentance. Right, Paul makes that clear in, in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, I'm glad you were genuinely sorrowful, that you were filled with that godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation without regret. Um, sin always involves sorrow for God's people. Um, that, that's why Paul says, should we sin so graceful bounds? No, that, that's not only antithetical to who we are now that we've been redeemed as God's children, but that will always involve sorrow. Um, we, we know that by painful experience, don't we, as God's people, when we stumble and fall into sin, that process of repentance and turning back to God is often begins with that sorrow we feel for having failed, uh, for doing those things that we hate. Um, we can think of that the way Paul expresses it in Romans 7, right? The frustration he has that he finds himself doing the things that he hates to do. Any things that he wants to do, he can't seem to do. Right? That, that difficulty of the Christian life. Genuine sorrow is always involved in, in turning away from sin. But what happens when we turn to God? We exchange that sorrow for joy. Because when we turn to God, what do we find? We find a God who's willing to receive us in Christ and to restore us. A God who's truly willing to forgive what we've done wrong, to forget it. Right as he promises in Psalm 103, to put all your sins behind my back and remember them no more. Um, To forgive and forget and not to let it stand in the way of the relationship that you have with God. Um, He doesn't look at you and say, what a dirty, vile sinner that keeps coming to me with a pile of no good deeds. Um, No, he looks at you and says, son, daughter. Um, Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, right? That's the great trade in repentance. It does begin with sorrow. It It does begin with pain as we look at what we've done. But as we turn to the Lord, what do we find? We find joy because our sins are forgiven us. Or as David expressed it in Psalm 32, that sin that was pressing me down until I could find no relief, I finally realized I need to turn to God with this and it just lifted off me. Um, You exchange sorrow for joy. Um, And instead of having to hate what is evil and try to run away from it, you run into the arms of the God who loves you. Delighting in the things that delight Him. Doing good work. So we always have to maintain this balance when we think about sanctification. It's something that God has done and is doing in us. Not something we have to do for ourselves. But He produces in us an ability to work. And he calls us to work out our salvation 
even though it's him who's in us working to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so we're called to respond to this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And even though we've been put to death with Christ and raised with him, Paul can also say in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, right? Put it to death. That's where we're to be active in responding to his redeeming and renewing work. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You hear that? Put away, put to death, put off. And why are we to do that? Because you've been put off. The old self has been put off. So why would you live like you're still in it? Right? So, so even in Scripture, as it's giving those instructions, we have to hold both of those things in our mind. We have put off the old self. Therefore, when I see old self-type things in my life, I should put that off. Uh, I should turn away from that. And what do I put on in its place? Having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Um, Paul can give a big long list of the things to put off. And then he says, and what do you put on? Christ. That's what you put on. Um, we're being renewed after the knowledge, the image and knowledge of our creator. That's what we need to put on. And we do that in our lives by doing good works. That's what we're called to do, to do good works. That's the end of question 90. Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every good work. Um, and so then we need to ask the question, what is a good work? What are good works? How do we define them so we know that we're doing them correctly? Well, question 91 helps us with that by defining what a good work is. Um, and there are three parts to good works. Again, I didn't make this up. It was clearly written by a pastor. But there are three parts to what makes a good work. Um, only those which are done out of a true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory. That's what a good work is. Um, those three things are always present and not those based on our own opinion or on human tradition. Uh, that's how we define a good work. Um, now, now I'd like to start as we think about what is a good work with what it's not. To think about that last line of question 91. Uh, good works are not those that are based on our own opinion or on human tradition. Um, I think it's really important for us always to remember God gets to define what good works are, not us. Um, and we have to always be very careful about that because sin is very deceitful. It's one of the realities of sin. I think sometimes in the Christian life, we think of sin as a minefield. Um, you know, there, there are mines buried, and if you carefully pick your way across the field, you can avoid stepping on something and blowing yourself up. I think that's how we tend to think of, of sin. It's out there, and if I'm not careful, it'll get me. 
but if I exercise enough care, then maybe I can safely navigate my way through. That's not how the Bible describes sin. Sin is not benign out there waiting for you, and if you're careful, you may be able to avoid it. Sin is coming for you. Right? Early on in the scriptures, when, when Cain is thinking about murdering his brother, God comes to him and said, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And you must master it. That's a far scarier conception of sin. It's not out there somewhere that if you're careful you can avoid. It's coming for you. And you have to live your life in that care. And one of the things it likes to do is try to trick you. Um, sin is deceitful. And one of the ways it deceives us is to make us think we're doing God's will when we're not. Um, and, and we can see that all over the world, that people do all kinds of wicked things, sometimes even in the name of Christ, but they do wicked things in the name of God. I'm doing what God wants me to do. God is for this. Um, and that's why it's always important for us to come back and say, no, good works are only those things that God thinks are good works, not those that are based on human tradition or our own opinion. Um, a great example of this, I know sometimes these things are, are hard for us to wrap our minds around, so maybe a good example would be helpful from Scripture. Um, maybe we can think of King Saul and one of the last acts of disobedience that cost him his kingdom which we read about in 1 Samuel 15. Now, I know all of you know 1 Samuel 15 off the top of your head, but in case you don't remember, um, I'll refresh your memory. Um, Saul is given a command by the Lord that he's to go and completely devote to destruction all the Amalekites. They've been harassing God's people. They've done evil, and God says, you're to go and devote them to destruction. And it's one of those terrible pronouncements of judgment in the Old Testament. You're to go there and leave nothing breathing kill everything that lives. Devote them completely to destruction. They're under my curse. That's the command that's given to Saul. And Saul goes out and goes to war with them. The Lord delivers them into his hands. Um, and what does Saul do? Saul and the people spared the king, Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So God had said, destroy everything. They destroyed everything that wasn't worth keeping. And everything that was worth keeping, they kept. And the Lord reveals this to Samuel. And Samuel is mad. And he spends all night praying to the Lord. And in the morning, he goes to Saul and says, what have you done? Um, and Saul's response to him is kind of interesting. He says, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Behold, I've been doing good work. Um, and it's sort of comical because Samuel says, well, that's funny because what is, where are all the sheep and ox I hear? I thought you're supposed to destroy all of that. Um, and he says, well, I had, I had a better idea. I thought instead of just destroying it all, I could keep the really good stuff and we could offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. Because surely the Lord loves sacrifices, right? Um, and Samuel rebukes him with really well-known words and words that are worth us always meditating on. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And that was the end um, of Saul and Samuel. That was the end of Saul hearing from the Lord. And he had said, I did the commandment of the Lord. That was his contention, right? That, that shows us how deceitful sin is because God came along and said, no, you rejected my word. Um, we have to be very careful that we don't base how we live on our opinions of what is right or on other people's opinions of what is right. Uh, the only thing that's important is what does God want his people to do? Um, our own opinions and our own ideas only get us into trouble. Um, they only get us into trouble. So we have to do good as God defines it. And how does he define it? Well, he says first it has to be done out of faith. Right? Hebrews 11 tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. If someone is not a true believer, they cannot do good work. Um, good works are only those which are done out of a true faith. Um, and that's how we can distinguish. You know, sometimes we struggle with, don't, don't our neighbors who are basically nice people, don't they do good works? Um, and they, they do good works that are considered good from a, from a general perspective, but they lack that faith-based effort. Um, and nothing can be a good work in God's sight that doesn't come out of true faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Um, and so good work has to begin by, con by coming from true faith. It also has to conform to God's law. Right? You can't do what you want to do and then say, behold, I've kept the commandment. Um, you have to look and say, what is the commandment? And then keep it. Right? You don't need to go to seminary for that. It's fairly profound. When God says do something, you need to do it. And because he said so is enough. Um, now, he always has a reason that's always for our good, but because he said so is enough. Um, we have to do what he tells us to do and conform to God's law in all that we do. He wants us to hear and he wants us to obey, to do what his law requires. Um, and third, he wants us to do these things for his glory, not for ourselves. And we can think of people in the New Testament uh, who did things for their own glory. Um, Ananias and Sapphira are a good example of people who did good work for their own glory. Right? They, they sold all of their property. They said they're going to give it all to the church, except they didn't give it all to the church. They held it back. And why did they want to give it all to the church or make people think they were giving it all to the church? So that people would look at them the way they looked at those who had done the same thing. So they said, what generous people, what good people. Right? It wasn't for God's glory, it was for their glory. And they ended up dying as a result of that. Or we can think of the Pharisees who loved to pray in public and loved to give offerings in public and loved to fast in public, but of whom Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Um, their reward was being seen by people. And they got that. But they had no glory from God. 
Um, we have to do God's will and follow him and do these things so that he is glorified. So that we bring honor and praise to his name. Um, and, and a great example, we'll, I'll close with this example, but a great example of people who did good works like are being described here are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three guys with the funny name who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, and, and many of us probably remember that story as being top favorite stories in the Bible. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, and what makes it great is they're commanded to do an act of idolatry. And they refuse. They're told when the symphony starts playing, when they're done, you've got to bow down to the image the king made. And anybody who doesn't bow down to the image, they get thrown in the furnace. Um, and then it comes back reported to the king that these three guys who work for you and are pretty high up in the kingdom, they don't bow down to the golden image when the music plays. And he comes to them and says, okay, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to play the music. I'm going to tell you to bow down. And if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace immediately. Um, and he said, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Do it or you go into the furnace and who's going to save you? And their response is really remarkable. We read that in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What do we see there? Do we see true faith? Our God is able to deliver us from your hand. You might throw us in, and he may save us, and he might not. But know that he's able to deliver us out of your hand. There's true faith. And what they do is conforming to God's law. You say, bow down to the image. God says, you shall worship me and have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image or bow down to it. And so they even have the presumption to say, we don't even need to answer you in this matter. What we need to do is very clear. God says, don't bow down to images. And so we have to do what God says. And if that means dying in the furnace, it means dying in the furnace. But if he doesn't deliver us and we burn up in the furnace, you'll know that we didn't bow down to your image or serve your God. How could you describe what they did as anything but seeking to glorify God in that moment? Because for all they knew, they were dying in the furnace. That's how this story usually ends for people who stand up for the Lord. And by what they say, they're clear they don't know what's going to happen. But what do they know? They believe in their God and they will obey Him rather than men and they will glorify Him even if it means they need to glorify Him in their dying. That's a good work. That's a good work. Because it's not done for themselves. It was done solely for the Lord and to bear witness to Him. And that's so important for us to grasp as a definition 
Because we live in a world where increasingly to do the thing that God has commanded will set you at odds with the world. Well, the world is filled with ideas and opinions about what constitutes a good work. Um, And whereas maybe 10 years ago they would have said you're just a, a bunch of stuffy Christians who aren't willing to go along and get along, now it's becoming more severe. You're hateful, you're bigoted, um, you just, you're behind history, you've got to get up with the times, you can't believe those things. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't really matter what the world thinks. Um, it doesn't really matter if they think we're on the wrong side of history. We're not going to have to stand before the judgment seat of history. We're not going to have to stand between the judge, before the judgment seat of popular culture. We're going to have to stand between the judgment before the judgment seat of God. And when you have that perspective, then you know who you have to obey. That's what they had. These three men that did this thing were not superstar Christians. They just had a clear vision of God. And they said, bowing down to your image offers us nothing. Offers us nothing in comparison with what God offers us by allegiance to him. Even before Christ had come into the world, they were were showing the mind of Christ. Because he came and did exactly what was pleasing to his father. He trusted the will of his father in everything he did in his life. And he obeyed everything his father called him to do to redeem the people that his father had given to him, even though that meant giving himself in death on the cross and bearing the eternal wrath of God against sin for us. He did that. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for his father and for us. That his father might be glorified by his sacrifice. That's what we need to do as God's people. That's the spirit that's needed from God's people in this age. Um, I love what Thomas Watson said. I think it's well worth our, our endeavor. And we'll, I really will end with this. I already said I would end once, but I really will end this time. Um, but I really love what he said. He wrote, if we would keep up the sprightly vigor of grace in evil times, let us harden our heart against the taunts and reproaches of the wicked. David was the song of drunkards. A Christian is never the worse for reproach. Reproaches are but splinters of the cross. How will someone endure the stake who cannot bear a scoff? Reproaches for Christ are marks of honor and badges of adoption. Let Christians bind these reproaches as a crown about their head. Better to have men reproach you for being godly than have God damn you for being wicked. Be not laughed out of your religion. If a lame man laughs at you for walking upright, will you therefore limp? Isn't that a wonderful picture? If someone who's lame laughs at you because you can walk, would you stop walking? Would you start limping? Um, that would make no sense. And so we as God's people have to be so concerned with conformity to what he has said that we're willing to ignore the opinions of the world. We're willing to ignore what the world thinks is right and say, no, God has spoken. 
I believe in him. I put my faith and trust in him. And there's not a single person who's ever trusted in him and regretted it. No, those who trust him will never be put to shame. And so we put our trust in him and we do what he's commanded. And we do it no matter what the cost is so that he might be glorified. That's something only the Spirit can work in us. And by God's grace, the amazing thing is that same Spirit that was in the Lord Jesus Christ is in us by his gift. And so be encouraged, people of God, that that same strength that let those men go to the furnace is living and at work in you and in me because of Christ and by his Spirit who indwells us forever. So let's live in that hope, put to death the old self, and bring to life the new. Amen.